This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Esther uh, is a book that uh, we've been learning about how to understand life when God is not explicit, right? When God is not explicit in your life, when you don't see the visions and the audible voices, uh, when you sometimes feel that he is even distant, like so many of the psalmists, how do you understand spirituality? How do you understand God? Because what we want, especially when we, re- when we read stories like the splitting of the Red Sea, uh, that's what we want, right? Often that's what we pray for. God, show me a vision. May this happen so that I would know this is the way to go. But when you actually read through all the scripture, you recognize that it's not these grand moments, only these grand moments that God, that God uses. It's actually in the mundane, very ordinary, ordinary aspects of life. And that's maturity. When you can learn to see God through, through the word of God and by faith, that's an intimate walk with the Lord that you can only have because of his grace. And that's our hope as we finish off. As we finish off this, uh, this, this book, it's how do you see the unseen God? How do you understand where he is, especially in times of need? So today we're talking about salvation, that moment in life when you know you need to be saved. I'm not simply talking about spiritual. I'm thinking about those moments in life when uh, you have that, that argument with your spouse. You... you Your job is in question, and you wonder, how in the world am I going to get through this? I need saving. I need help. And we're talking about that level, the earthly level and the spiritual level. And the first thing that we see is uh, the need for salvation, the need for salvation. Tell your neighbor uh, or, or speak to the camera or speak to the computer screen that you need to be saved. You need to be saved. In the twelfth month, in verse 1, which is the month of Adar, and the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and the edict were about to be carried out, and the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain, what does it say? Mastery over them. It's a special word. Mastery over them. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Uh, this book, Esther, is a book that many uh, you know, Christians love, many Jewish uh, people love. But it's actually a book that's been well uh, respected amongst literature. Why? Because it's a story about opposition, about overcoming your struggles in life. And it does... It just does an amazing job of portraying the struggles that you will experience. And then from there, trying to overcome it. And for them, they needed their lives to be saved. They needed salvation. They they needed God to do something. If God did not do something, they were going to die. And you may have felt like that. Maybe not on a physical level, but you felt like, God, if you don't come through in this moment, I don't know how I'm going to get through it. And if you haven't experienced that moment, good news, it's only a matter of time. That we're all going to experience it, 
right? You're, you're all going to experience it. You can come from the most wealthy of people and the highest level of society. You've experienced it. You could come from the poorest of the poor. You're going to experience it. As parents, we understand it. We want to protect our children from the evil. We don't want them to be hurt. But we also know a part of our job as parents is to help them get ready for that moment so that they won't break. This is something that we will all go through, this idea of someone wanting to master us. We saw that in 9-11 for the the U.S., a country that's invincible, felt vulnerable, right? And it changed. 9-11 changed America. Uh, There's a different depression throughout the world. Right? Uh, for me, in 2008, when I was uh, in the U.S., there was a financial crisis that impacted me even to this day. Right? And we realized financially we're not invincible. We're vulnerable. And we're all experiencing it right now. All of us. Right? COVID-19. Right? Um, they should have called it COVID-20. Because it's just 2020. Right? All of 2020. <laughs> Uh, 2020 has been uh, the objectively worst year that I think all of us have experienced. Subjectively, you may have gone through you know, worse times, but I mean, right, the economic crisis. Right now, for us in Korea, the second wave, uh, so many uh, business owners are so worried. I heard that like 25% of real estate here in Itaewon is empty, and we still can't find space. Go figure. <laughs> right? Uh, we've learned that uh, not only is the economy and society vulnerable, we've recognized physically we're vulnerable, right? I mean, we all um, are a little bit antsy, right? A little bit anxious when somebody uh, comes into the elevator and they don't have a mask. We're like, what is this person doing? Like, had, did they not get the memo? Any kind of enclosed space, when someone gets near, you take a step back. Because we are in a crisis moment. We're in need, in a, a moment when we are in need. I mean, so much so, I'm not sure for you, when you watch TV, when you watch uh, something from, you know, recorded last year or 20 years ago, and they, they, they walk into a crowd, for you, you're like, oh, what are they doing? Oh, that's right. It was recorded 20 years ago. And that's what it's done. Uh, we, we've realized how vulnerable we are. In moments like 2020, years like 2020, we realize there has to be something else. We need salvation is what I will call it. We need something drastic to change. If this continues on, imagine this. If this continues on, 2020, for the rest of our lives, what's going to happen to society? We will see depression increase. We will see suicide increase. We will see more volatile acts increase. This is what we are made of. This is what 2020 has taught us, that something is out there wanting to gain mastery over us. But when you take a deeper look inside, you recognize it wasn't just outside, right? That there's something internal that you're also struggling with, right? That when you're alone, there's something about this here that's creating maybe a deeper loneliness, a deeper, you sense a greater darkness within. Maybe through it, you've grown uh, to become more addictive to certain things, certain negative habits. This language is not too different than Genesis 4 as it talks about sin manifesting and growing in humanity after Adam and Eve sin, 
right? They blame each other. You see destruction within society. They, they, there is no love and patience for each other. There's only blaming. And then in, in Genesis 4, 7, it talks about, uh, it personifies sin. If you do well, will it not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. And we've all experienced that, right? Not even as a, not even as a Christian, just even before. There's, there's these desires that we have that are conflicting within. But now as a believer, it, it's, it's even clearer how you want to love God. Or how you want to be a man or woman in the word. How you want to be a man or woman of prayer. You want to be a, a man or woman who loves people. That's what you want. But on Monday, you find yourself irritable and grumpy. Right? Impatient. Short with people. And you pray for forgiveness. It's, 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 this, it's this battle within that we need something great to help us. Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist who's practiced uh, for many years, an expert in his field, also a non-believer, says this about the human heart. When the awakening occurs, notice those words, the awakening, talking about every person needs that moment when they realize what's within. When the awakening occurs, when once naive people recognize in themselves the seeds of evil and monstrosity and see themselves as dangerous, at least potentially, their fears de- de- decrease. They develop more self-respect. Then perhaps they begin to, to resist oppression. They see that they have the ability to withstand because they are, they are terrible too. They see they can they can and must stand up because, listen to these words, because they begin to understand how genuinely monstrous they will become, otherwise feeding on their resentment, transforming it into the most destructive of wishes. This is one of the most difficult lessons of life. As these counseled hundreds of people, that's his conclusion on humanity. That there's something within. Once, once you genuinely acknowledge that, what he's saying is you have to respect that. And then you have to actually oppose that. Because if you don't, what you realize is that darkness within will eat you up alive. It'll make you a monstrous kind of person. Or you end in destruction. And I don't think you have to look outside to recognize that. right? I think you can simply look inside. Once you see your heart, the bitterness, how cold it could be. Why is it that the very people that love us most also are the ones that hurt us? It is because there is something within where we do not love well. We're not as evil as we can be. We're definitely not as good as we should be. That we need to be saved. And so what's the solution? Where is salvation? The hope for salvation. Tell your neighbor there is hope. Tell me there is hope. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. Mastery over them. The reverse occurred. Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. That's verse 1. And then verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces of King Asuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. So people are, are aiming to, to gain up on them, to kill them. 
They hated the Jews. They hated God's people. But what does it say? It reversed, right? No one could stand against them, for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces, of the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, and fear, the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. And then it talks about in verse 4, the, the reputation of Mordecai growing. And then in verse 5, you have, to note, you have to read these words. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And you think, yes, the good guys won. Right? It's good guys versus bad guys. The world is, is filled with good guys and bad guys. And the good guys won. And that's why you love the story, right? That's not the point of the story. It's not about good guys versus bad guys. It's about bad guys and one good guy that we'll talk about later. It's in this, in verse 6, we see that uh, they actually do defend themselves as people attack them. The Jews actually kill 500 men. And then from there, they, they mention the names of the sons of Haman that I will not attempt to read. Thank you, Lauren. And then from there, what does it say in verse, end of verse 10? But they laid no hand on the plunder. And then in verse 15, they laid no hand on the plunder. And then in verse 16, they laid no hand on the plunder. The author doesn't give much commentary. But when the author is trying to make a point, has repeated it over and over and over, right? Uh, Agagites, Haman hated the Jews, hated the Jews, hated the Jews. It's something that the author wants us to understand. This is a huge point. The point that the author is making is this is not good guys versus bad guys. This is not even war between two uh, ethnicities. It is not that. Because what happens is in that situation, you would take their good. That's what they would do in this time. And In fact, just before, in the chapter before, they were commanded to take the plunder in chapter 8, verse 11. But here, even though they are told you can't take the plunder, they don't take the plunder. They don't take the goods. So the question you have to ask is, what is the point? Why does the author make it such a big deal that these men do not take the other people's goods? I mean, they're dead. What good is the plunder? What good is it? And then this is when you recognize this is not simply revenge. This is not simply good versus bad. There's something spiritual going on. There's something spiritual going on. Because the natural tendency is, in humanity, whenever you want revenge, it tends towards it being oppressive. Right? Think about a rivalry, or think about someone that has hurt you. What do you want? You want revenge. But not only do you want revenge, you want that other person to experience pace in a worse way than you did. That's the nature of revenge. That's also the nature of justice in many ways. Richard Bauckham says it this way about our human tendency as we seek uh, justice. When we seek justice, we have a powerful human inclination to dominate others. As you seek to be right, as you seek to be good, you tend to become dominating. And one of the greatest examples of that is communism, 
right? A government set up seeking utopia, often ending in some sort of genocide, right? And that's the caution. And that's what you see here. What you see here is these men and women not being oppressive. What you see here is men and women who seek justice, but they don't take the plunder. And this is a message that we need to hear today. Because political tensions are high, right? Here in Korea, oh, it's high, right? With the little Korean that I understand, I sense it is bad, right? In the U.S. I mean, when you, you probably hate Facebook, right? Because of all of the noise. But every group is pursuing good, right? Every group is pursuing justice. At least they believe that. And in that, it tends to become oppressive. So it's important to note that they did not take the plunder. They were not greedy. How do, how do you have a justice like that? How do you aim for salvation where it does not end up in oppression? We see this with Black Lives Matter, right? Our sister Laura prayed for the families of those who have been killed, of Jacob Blake who is in the hospital. We 100% are against racism, 100%, right? But what we also need to be mindful of is as we seek justice, not to err on being oppressive. Because in our, in our attempt to overcome the oppressor, we become the oppressor. And this is what I would call religious secularism. When we take these good values and then make it an ultimate, and then we define and judge everyone on this one virtue as if they've done nothing wrong. And so there's this image that I saw, and I looked into it more to see if it was true. It's this image of a peaceful protest that started to, it did not get violent, but it started to get violent. When these, uh, when these uh, men and women in this, in this march uh, saw some people sitting outside of the restaurants, so they started to approach them, demanding that they raise their fist in solidarity. And what's their motive? They hate racism. And I would agree, we should absolutely hate racism. But this woman, Laura Victor, did not raise her hand. And so they, they crowded her more and more and more. You know what's crazy about this? Is Lauren Victor marched in a Black Lives Matter uh, demonstration a little bit before that. She just wasn't okay with someone forcing her to do this. And so she took a stand. And then, and we hear the video, it's actually a video, you hear the anger. I do think a lot of it is just their anger against racism. But that's what happens when we take a good principle and we make it an ultimate, we then condemn everyone else. And when we see the Israelites not taking the plunder, it says something about God and his justice and his salvation. That his salvation does bring true justice. 
I've read this quote before, but I'm going to read it again because it helps us understand what's really going on. Tim Keller, talking about Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards' uh, um, theology about how this happened, says this, If our highest goal in life is the good of our family, then we tend to care less of other families. If our highest goal is the good of our nation, tribe, or race, then we will tend to be racist or nationalistic. If our ultimate good in life is our own individual happiness, then we will put, put uh, our own economic and power interests ahead of others. Edwards concludes that only if God is our summum bonum, our ultimate good, life center, will we find our heart drawn out not only to the people of all families, races, and classes, but to the whole world as well. This was written centuries ago. But it speaks to us because we see the truth of it. Once you hold a nation, tribe, or race as the highest goal, you tend to be racist or nationalistic. And with people who are fighting against racism, what can happen is you can make that the ultimate good and therefore judge all other things. And so when we see these Israelites not taking the plunder, you have to ask yourself why. Because this was generations in coming. Generations in coming of people hating the Jews. And for them, if it was purely revenge, they would have taken, killed all the people and then taken all the goods. But they don't. In verse 1 and in verse 10, we see this even more clearly. They hated the enemies of the Jews. They hated them, right? Enemies of the Jews in verse 10. That's how they're described over and over and over. If you know the story, it's when, it is, it's when Moses was leading the Israelites out. It was the Malachites who actually attacked them first because they hated what they were all about. And so the Malachites begin this in Exodus 17. When Saul becomes king, he's given the command, hey, these Amalekites are no good. They're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're, they're not for what, what God is about, his plan of redemption. So Saul is commanded to, to a war against them. But Saul doesn't completely obey. And so that seed of sin continues on. And then we see here the end of the Amalekites. And again, it's not against a people it's because these people were against God. It's not good versus bad here. It's that we're all bad, and there ends up being only one good. And the reality for that for us is that we were the enemies. That's the reality. When you think about the Malachites and what they were, in the New Testament, Jesus tells us we were the enemies. Right? We were enemies of God. We wage war. We were the ones that, were, that deserved death. And so when, you, when we read that these sons of Haman were put to death, were hung, you would think, isn't that a bit too cruel? But the reality is, is that's what sin, the sins that we have committed, that's what we would deserve the penalty of it. And so we should have been hung. We should have had death for the sins of our own souls when we rebel against God. But what does Jesus do? He goes in our place and he is hung on that tree on our behalf. 
But not only that, not only does he take the wrath of God on our behalf, he gives us the right to be heirs, sons and daughters of God. You see, this, these verses are not encouraging violence by any means. Matthew 6, 20, Matthew 26, 52, Jesus is very clear. Put your swords back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You know what does Jesus do? He dies and he shows this is the war that we are in. We're not in war against other nations. We are not at war with other governments. We are at war with evil, with Satan, with sin. So how does Jesus defeat that? By the greatest act of love. That's the hope of salvation. For whatever it is that you're going through, whether it's 2020 related, whether it's racism related, whether it's politics related, whether it's your own personal lives related, the true hope of true justice where you won't take the plunder, you won't oppress people in your, in your attempts to overcome the oppressor, the only way to do that is when you recognize that you are not the hero. There is only one hero and his name is Jesus. And he is the one that has come to save the day. He is the one that has come to save 2020. He is the one that will save whatever it means, America. And what I mean by that, it is not a political party that's going to carry on what we desire. It is God and his kingdom. And that is the only way that you will not fall into the temptation of oppression. That's the hope of salvation. And the marks of salvation, how do you know that you've experienced this? We see this in, in 9.22, where they got relief from their enemies. And then what does it say? Their sorrow turned into gladness from mourning into a holiday, something that they celebrated. And they made feasts because they were glad. And they sent gifts of food to one another, gifts to the poor. They were celebrating because they recognized that it was God that has given them this gift. The mark of salvation is joy. The mark of salvation is gladness. It's gratitude. Right? It's generosity. And the simple question is, is your life marked with that? Do you understand that? That you were truly an enemy of God and Christ was hung in that tree on your behalf. When you understand the reality of salvation, you are marked by it and you start to demonstrate it with people. This is the only way when you have personal tension with people. This is the only way they can actually truly forgive. When you recognize you are also an offender, that you also offended God and God in his grace, he was gracious to you. That is the only way they can truly forgive where you actually want good for the other person. It's when you realize you are not the Savior. That's the mark of salvation. And to close it out, just four practical takeaways of how to live out this salvation. Living out our salvation. Because I want you to know, as you are saved, you have to live in it. First is to trust his word. It's to trust his word. And we see this in the writing of chapter 9, right? All the chapters before this, it's like a well-written novel. 
right? There's climax, right? There's, there's tension. There's, there's, there's this, um, this story of the antagonist and the protagonist, right? You see all of this, and then in chapter 9, it just downshifts. And so this happened, and so they died, and so these things happened, and that's it. The author is making this point. Once the decree went out, it was final. Once God's decree went out that his people would be, would be protected, there is no more reason to tell a dramatic story because that's what happens. It's to trust his word. When his word goes out, it does not come back void. It always accomplishes what it desires. And for you, in 2020, as you struggle with anxiety, as you struggle with depression, as you struggle with all these different things, what you need to know more deeply than ever is the truth of the word of God, the promises written in the word of God. And I challenge you in this season, make that your priority. Don't just wait till 2020 to end, but use this season. If you remember in the beginning of 2020, the word was devotion. This is the perfect time. You can't go out. I think we were right that this year we, God wants us to be devoted. Trust his word. Live by faith, not by sight. Live by faith, not by sight. You see, the Old Testament people throughout their walk, God would, would show up in these glorious, majestic, uh, miraculous ways. The splitting of the Red Sea, the stopping of water in a river when they would cross. They would see God in a cloud, a pillar of fire, a pillar, a pillar uh, of, of cloud. Right? They, would, see, he, they, they heard the stories of Elijah. And so what it taught the people, they started to depend on God and his miraculous work. And one Jewish commentator says this about, about the book of Esther, about how God is teaching them through the book of Esther to wholeheartedly trust in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament to teach them that God doesn't always have to work in these miraculous ways, that God is happy to work in the very ordinary ways of life. That if you trust his word, that you will live by faith, not by sight. If you only want miracles, let me tell you, you are living by sight. You need God to do this and this and this. To live by faith is even though you don't see it, you trust him and you move forward. Live by faith, not by sight. Live faithfully in times of uncertainty. They didn't know. The author actually doesn't tell us whether Mordecai or Esther actually knew the covenant. There's no mention about that. They just do the right thing. They protect their people. And in that, they recognize that even though Esther and Mordecai may not even know what role they played in redemptive history, by their faithfulness, God uses them. What that tells us is you may have no idea what God is doing in your life. You may have no idea what you're supposed to do next. But the idea is be faithful as you are faithful in hindsight. In 2020, do you get it? In 2020, you'll recognize all that God is doing. Lastly, await the great banquet. Because you will not find salvation here on earth. You will find salvation in Christ, and you will find salvation in heaven. Verse 22. As the days of which the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the months that had been turned for them, 
from great sorrow to gladness and mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness. And because of that, they gave food to the poor. Esther starts off with a banquet of men and women of power, of influence. And it ends with the lowest of the low, the Jewish people, feasting, where their mourning has turned to gladness. It's a reminder that our great feast will come one day. That you will struggle here on this side of heaven because of all the sin, because of all the men and women who are against God and his plan of redemption. But will you wait for that day? Will you wait where you can dine with the king, the true king, the true savior, the one who will truly take care of you, the one who brings true and lasting salvation? Let's long and wait for that day. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening, and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.